In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Mark Boris, and this is Straight Talk. The subtle art of not giving a... Mark Manson. The New York Times best-selling author. He sold more than 14 million copies of his books. Were you really reading that book? I was absolutely reading that book. Yep, he's the author of that orange book everyone and the dog has recommended to you. Why is the word... Being changed around. UK is fine, Australia is fine, New Zealand is fine. You know, Americans were prudes. In Australia, we couldn't give We love that word. The subtle art of not giving a fuck is about the choices we make in each and every moment. There's like a certain clarity that comes from hardship, living in poverty in Africa or something. Very easy to know what to give a fuck about. But as we become more affluent, we lose that clarity. 500 channels on TV and you can order 20 different types of cuisine from a button on your phone. Like, yeah, it's actually really difficult to know what's important and what's not. You're bombarded with abundance all the time. He's the anti-self-help dude that has disrupted a multi-billion dollar industry. It's, it's been a conscious goal of mine for many, many years to disrupt the industry in a way that makes those practices no longer as profitable as they are. I wrote this thing, but I wrote it because I, I fucking struggle with it all the time. Mark Manson, welcome to Straight Talk, mate. Thanks for having me. Where are you coming to me from? Where, where are you sitting right now? I am in Los Angeles, California. Your book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a, well, a fuck, to be honest with you, but uh, now it's, it's sort of got asterisks and all sorts of things in there. You've sort of changed the word around. Why is the word fuck being changed around? Uh, it's an American thing. You know, Americans were prudes distributing the film through Universal in the UK, and, and they said that UK is fine, Australia is fine, New Zealand is fine. Americans want the whole word censored so because in australia we couldn't give a fuck actually like um but we love that we love that word like it's sort of everyone uses it you know i, I sometimes could well it's funny i'll be interested to hear what you got to say but sometimes i i get criticized a little bit on um you know through the usual socials or all the haters uh come at me because i do swear all the time and uh but only because that's how me and my mates talk and uh and i'm not trying to produce anything extra other than how i normally talk with my mates <laughs> well like you i don't give a fuck it's, uh, I mean, that's the beauty of, of, of the internet, honestly, you know, and I, I started out blogging and I engage most of my audience through the internet is you get people from all over the world. And if they don't like it, fuck off. Yeah. Fuck off. They don't have to read it. As in my brother used to always say to me, cough. And I used to say, what do you mean cough? He said, as in fuck off. <laughs> that's, so why have you taken so six years or six or so years this book, what has happened in that period to make you all of a sudden want to put up a documentary 
GFC Productions came to me. They said they wanted to do a documentary version of the book. My my mentality is great. You know, the the further the ideas get spread, the better. During that process of making the documentary, I just want to read something to you. Right at the open of the doco, um, I've had the opportunity to look at it and you say, you and everyone you know are going to be dead soon. That's pretty heavy. And if you go around giving a fuck about everything and everyone without conscious choice, well, then you're going to get fucked. Uh, I mean, obviously it's got the dramatic effect to, to kick it off, but what do you want the viewer to feel or maybe think as opposed to feel as soon as they hear you or see you say that? The reminder of death is key there because as I talk about at the end of the book, and at the end of the film, death has a way of clarifying what actually matters. And I think anybody who's like had a real scare in their life or a close call or had somebody close to them pass away uh, has experienced this, that when you get close in proximity to death, it suddenly clarifies all the other things in your life and what actually matters and what's worth your time and what's not worth your time. Uh, And so ultimately, the subtle art of not giving a fuck is about the choices we make in each and every moment of what are we paying attention to? What are we caring about? What are we choosing to value to make matter in our lives? And most of us, we're not aware that we're making that choice most of the time. And so there's a lot of language in the book, in the film that's kind of used as a tool to like jolt people awake to that, the fact that that choice is happening. Uh, and so that passage is kind of, just a perfect example of that. It's funny because um, I often say, I mean, I really don't give a fuck. I mean, I, and that's the truth. I, I actually don't give a fuck what people think or say. And I, in relation to this show, not with you necessarily, but the show generally. And someone asked me, one of the production team asked me, have you always been that way? And I said, well, no, actually not that. It's not the case. I, I did indulge myself. And one of the things I tend to do is I think of it like a buffet. You know, at one stage I got presented with a buffet which I'd never had the opportunity or could have, or, nor could I afford to eat at that buffet. But on this buffet, you got everything, everything you ever wanted to eat or you think you ever wanted to eat and you just indulge yourself for ages and you go back, keep going back. But over time, I just worked out, I'm only going to take certain things out of that buffet and I don't need to fill myself up such that I feel like I'm going to puke everywhere. Um, is that sort of what you're talking about? And I know it's that's not a very glamorous way of putting it, <laughs> but, but nonetheless. Well, I, I think what you're getting at is, I think it's pretty common in human nature that sometimes we need to go to excess to know where to stop. Like it's hard to, if you're at zero, it's hard to, the concept of letting things go or or not caring about having certain things is, is a hard concept to, to understand. You know, it's, you have nothing. So you want all the things, but it's like, as you start accumulating the many, many things and the many experiences, you, you start to realize like, Oh, only a few of these are actually really satisfying me and making me happy. And so it, it's almost like a, it's a problem of privilege. You know, one, of, one of the things I talk about in the book is that when you, when you're in a difficult situation, like say a hundred years ago, if you're a subsistence farmer or you're living in poverty in Africa or something like it's actually very easy to know what to give a fuck about because your, your basic needs are so precarious that every day you wake up and you know, the only thing I need to give a fuck about is how am I going to eat? You know, how am I going to feed my kids? And so this, there's this, a certain paradoxically, there's like a certain clarity that comes from hardship 
or if you're in war, for instance, you know, it's very easy to know what to give a fuck about if you're in war. But as we become more affluent, more privileged, more successful, more spoiled, we lose that clarity. It actually becomes very, very difficult to know what to give a fuck about, what actually matters, what you should care about. Um, I think I used the example in the film of like, you know, it's when you have uh, 500 channels on TV and you can order 20 different types of cuisine from a button on your phone. Like, yeah, it's actually really difficult to know what's important and what's not because you're just, you're bombarded with abundance all the time. And, and so in that sense, I think it is kind of the struggle of the 21st century is this choosing to not care about things like like paring down what actually matters in your life rather than accumulating more. Have you ever been through that process where you didn't have enough, in other words, zero, but then uh, flipped into that period where you had excess and you tried everything? Well, <laughs> it's funny because I, I grew up pretty affluent in a pretty affluent family. You know, I, I, my dad is very successful, grew up in a big house, swimming pool, nice cars, private schools. But in a way, I feel very fortunate because I grew up in a very wealthy family that was completely miserable. So I learned at a very early age that those things don't solve anything. Um, and in fact, my parents, I think they, they used materialistic things to distract themselves from a marriage that wasn't working from a family that was a little bit dysfunctional, um, from kids that were struggling or who are not happy. So I kind of, I got these lessons backwards because I got to my twenties and I, I almost like voluntarily, I don't want to say I lived in poverty cause I didn't. Um, but I mean, I was broke and, and it was very voluntary, uh, living broke. Like I, my parents wanted me to go get a job and put on the suit and everything. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to bum around and build a website and, and I'm fine with that. I'm fine having no money for a while. But do you think you did that because you always felt knew that you could fall back on your parents? Yes, there was definitely a safety net under me. And I, I always knew that if shit really hit the fan, yeah, you can go live with mom or dad. So yeah, that that's why I say I don't think it's accurate to say I like lived in poverty. Um, I was broke, but I had a college degree. Uh, I had friends with good jobs that were helping me out. At the same time, it was very much like I would have rather died than... <laughs> then gone back and asked my dad for money, you know, like that, that was so shameful for me at the time. I, I, you know, I went into debt before that. So yes and no, to me, it was emotionally and mentally important, psychologically important that like, I felt like I was doing this on my own. So a lot of the decisions we make are driven by our emotions. And uh, you talk a lot about that. I know you're not a psychologist, but how did you become a person who could recognize these psychological things about yourself? I always had a knack for it. I remember my my dad telling me when I was young, telling me that I, I, I don't remember the exact situation, but I remember I was probably like 12 or 13 years old. And I remember uh, we were coming back from church. I grew up in Texas and so it was very religious. And I, we were coming back from church. And I remember telling my dad that I thought somebody he was talking to was lying. And my dad was super impressed. And I remember him telling me, he's like, you know, you have a knack for seeing people, reading people. But I was always interested in, in psychology, self-help. I started reading a lot of self-help as a teenager and on into my 20s. In my 20s, I got more into psychology, philosophy. Um, I got very much into Buddhism, a lot of meditation in my 20s. Um, used to go on meditation retreats and studied at a Zen center. These were always just kind of 
hobbies and passions for me. And I never really intended to make a career out of it. I started blogging on a lark and really just wrote about these topics because they were the topics that I was really interested in and would read a lot about. And it just kind of snowballed from there. It's funny because I, I, I now have friends who are psychologists, do have PhDs in psychology, and I, I've had conversations with them. And it's really funny because because of my blog and my platform and my audience, I have this incredible data set. You know, I've been getting hundreds of emails from people all over the world about problems in their lives for 12, 15 years now. I've now been exposed to tens of thousands of people sharing some of their most personal issues. It's just, an, I feel incredibly fortunate to, well, first of all, be trusted by that many people. But second of all, you know, from just kind of a more, I guess, academic point of view, just have access to all that data. Like seeing that a teenage girl in India is very much concerned with the exact same things as a teenage girl in Germany and a teenage girl in Australia and a teenage girl in Canada. I think a lot of people kind of intuitively assume that that is true or maybe hope that that is true. But for me, it's been very fascinating to see where those commonalities are and also see where those differences are across age, across culture, across gender, across sexual orientation. I think over the last 10 years, it's just been this like brute force exposure. What is one of the things that you've found in common that they wrestle with? Well, it's funny. I mean, there's really a small list of universal problems that, yeah, it's just pretty much ubiquitous across the world. So in younger people, it it tends to be anxiety or self-doubt around people that they are romantically interested in, anxiety and self-doubt around career paths, um, and often anxiety and doubt around what their parents are going to think, what their family thinks. That varies a little bit more by culture. Um, you know, Asian cultures, there's a lot of family pressure, whereas in Western cultures, there's, there's less, I think it's more pure social group pressure. You know, when you get older, it's a lot of stress about money, a lot of stress about marriages that are failing. And it's so funny too, because it's like, even in these completely, you know, you'll, I'll get an email from somebody say in Iraq and they will be kind of stressing over the exact same marital issues. (laughs) that, you know, an American reader will have, you know, you could almost like verbatim copy and paste one email into the other. And for me, it's very profound too. Like it's, it's at the end of the day, people concern themselves a lot about who they're with, what they're pursuing and what other people are going to think about them. And that's like, those three things probably consume like 80 to 90% of our anxieties (laughs) and fears, you know, and everything else is just window dressing, I guess if I just continue on that vein, part of the problem is we have a preoccupation in society today, doesn't matter where we are, about measurement and measuring something. And then we try to express that measurement by saying we've got a big house or we've got a fancy car or we've got incredible jewellery. So we try to express measurement all the time, which sort of equals success, success as a person. Is that part of the issue? It's about measurement. We continually try to quantify how well we're doing and therefore we also start to compare ourselves to somebody else who's saying how well they've done and we start to measure how well we are going relative to that person's um, measurement. I don't think it's necessarily measurement per se because I think measurement can be useful in a lot of pursuits. I think what you're getting at though that I, that I do agree with is definitions of success can be very tricky 
I think a lot of people get tripped up by their definitions of success, especially when they're not aware of their definitions of success. So, you know, you, you'll get somebody who is incredibly anxious about their car or very, very preoccupied about owning a certain type of car. And, you know, this is what a successful person owns and this is what they drive. And they don't even realize that they've kind of selected this arbitrary definition. And you see that applied, uh, you know, across all sorts of different dimensions. You know, some people, you see it in relationships, people define a successful marriage in a very arbitrary way. You know, the successful marriages, or we talk on the phone every day and my husband's not, doesn't call me back or whatever. And it's like, how is, how, how can I have a marriage with a husband who doesn't call me back? It's like, well, you know, maybe his definition of a marriage is different than yours. Um, So I think it's, it's a very tricky thing. A lot of the definitions we choose, they can be useful in some contexts, but get us in a lot of trouble in other contexts. And that's where the personalization of these problems come in, right? It's like everybody worries about their romantic relationships. Everybody worries about their career. Everybody worries about money. But we all have different definitions of what a successful career is, a successful relationship is, what successful being successful financially is. And that's where we get tripped up. That's where we start, you know, agonizing over silly things. There's always perceptions out there about what success is. People who are successful, whether it's money or in marriage or relationships or whatever it happens to be, don't suffer. In other words, there's there's nothing in their life that's shitty. Um, everything's like fantastic. They wake up in the morning. They got uh, they their breath smells like roses. Uh, they don't ever go to the toilet. They don't need to clean their teeth. They sit down and have mangoes and you know some special tea that comes out of India, etc. Um, the concept of accepting suffering, we did talk about Buddhism a little mo- a few moments ago, but the concept of accepting suffering and actually trying to engage with it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big reason why I was drawn to Buddhism because like I said, I, you know, my childhood was perfect on paper. Like if, if you wrote out my childhood and handed it to somebody, they'd be like, my God, that's perfect childhood. But it was very miserable for long periods of time. And and so when I came across Buddhism, you know, this idea that it's like suffering is inevitable, it's constant. Anything you achieve, anything you become attached to, it's that attachment to that thing is what causes the suffering. You know, it, it's, it felt very validating for the way I had grown up. You know, the, psychologically speaking, if you look at kind of psychological research on happiness, there's a thing called a hedonic treadmill. And it, the hedonic treadmill is basically this phenomenon that happens in our minds, which is when we want something, our mind kind of naturally just tells ourselves a bunch of stories that if we get that thing, everything's going to be fine. You know, all your problems today, they'll be solved. Strain in your relationships, they'll go away. You know, your coworkers will respect you more if you get that thing. And we don't even realize that we're playing this game. We just kind of buy into these narratives unconsciously and and start assuming that it's true. Well, and then you go, you get that thing, you achieve that goal, um, and you realize nothing changes, <laughs> you know, your, your relationships are just as fucked up as they were before. Your coworkers still don't respect you. And, you know, you're still waking up feeling like shit cranky. And so you, your brain finds another thing to tell that same story about. And I think what happens a lot of times is, you know, whatever our shiny thing is that we think is going to fix everything for a lot of people, it's money, but some people it's maybe being married, maybe it's a possession, a nice car, you know, whatever. When we see other people who have that thing, 
we assume that they must be great. And then if they're not happy, you know, we look at them, we're like, well, they have the thing, but they're not happy. Obviously, they're a piece of shit because anybody who has that thing should be happy all the time. And so we develop these judgments on these on other people and not again, not realizing that it's our false definition of success that is causing all the problems in the first place. It's very interesting. You talked about materialism and, you know, assets, having assets and um, sort of like you in some respects, I went through a period of time in my life before I was, you know, successful in the standard measurement way um, of. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Reading Buddhism books and I really got into the concept of detachment or being able to detach myself from things I would ordinarily be attached to, like, you know, um, how important it is to have a fancy house, how important it is to have a fancy car, etc. And this concept of detachment was always something I found quite elusive. It took me a long, long time to work out how to detach. Can you become too detached? In other words, I don't know, there's probably such a thing, but you, you suffer detachment syndrome. In other words, you don't give a fuck about anything. I mean, literally. And you become unreliable and you're not a good friend or you're not a good husband or wife or colleague or business partner, etc. Or role model. Well, it's interesting. I think this is, you know, this is a paradox that comes up a lot in Buddhism. And when you're overly attached to things, the process of detachment means caring less. That causes us to falsely assume that if you completely detach from things, then you're just, you know, you're just going to be a vegetable. You're just going to sit in the corner and stare at a wall all day. Detachment isn't, it's not not caring. It. I think a more accurate way of putting it is that it's disidentifying with whatever you're experiencing. So you still experience sadness. It's just that you're not consumed with the sadness. You you don't identify with the sadness. One way I had a Zen teacher who used to say, you don't say, I am sad. You say, I have sadness. And that sadness will, will go away. You don't say, I am smart. You say, I have intelligence, right? It's like these things, when you say I am this, I am that, you're identifying with the emotion, you're identifying with the trait, you're identifying with the experience, you're making it part of your identity, which is that is the attachment, is that when you decide like this is who I am and this is a fixed part of my experience. So it's almost like, to me, it, it feels more accurate to just think of it as a disidentification and and gaining separation 
I've got a friend who's gone very, very deep in the meditation practice, and he's actually a professional meditation teacher now. He told me that it's 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 almost like gaining distance in your mind from things that you you still get angry and upset at the person at the airport who's like screws up your your booking. But you're like watching that anger from far away and kind of laughing about it as it's happening, right? That that makes sense to me because I, I look at my, when I think about people who are very emotionally unhealthy, struggle a lot with their emotions, it's because they become consumed by them and lose themselves. Like they they get so angry that they forget that they are an autonomous human being separate from the anger. And they, they're, they're just, they just act on pure impulse and instinct. The way we think of maturity is that you learn to feel the anger, but not punch a hole in the wall or not hit somebody in the face. You feel the anger, you identify the anger, and then you choose different actions. And I think meditation is just taking that another step further of like, the anger arises and you just kind of watch it and you're like, oh, look, it's anger. You detach by actually stepping back and having a look at the emotion that it is confronting you or that you are feeling and just acknowledge it. And uh, But don't act on it. Don't indulge in it and don't, uh, I think this is what you're saying, just don't indulge in it. Don't flood yourself with emotion. Just step back and recognize it because it's there. We all get angry or whatever, disappointed, whatever the case may be. Um, and uh, But if you can just somehow manage to recognize it and not let it take control of you. It's a bit like putting your hand in the box because sometimes you've got to take out the emotion as well. And, you know, it, you know, like you actually got to put your hand in the box, take the emotion out, look at it and be part of that emotion, but then be prepared to put it back into the box. And uh, I mean, I say it to my kids all the time. I got four sons. It's interesting. You're talking about, you know, how you grew up. I got four sons and um, they're, you know, around your age, a little bit younger, one's older. And, um, they often say to me, and I raised my sons by myself, and they often say to me, um, they all live with me, and they say to me, Dad, we don't want to be like you. We don't want to because, you know, I was a kid from a pretty ordinary background and I saw shiny cars and shiny things and I thought I had this um, idea that the harder I work, the more things I can have. Um, that that became an important thing to me. That's all I, that's all I saw in front of me and I chased all these things. But I put a lot. I missed a lot of things in life. I, I, like I, I didn't spend enough time with my family. Important things. And my kids say to me today, Dad, we don't want to be like you. We want to have a more simple life, and they're much more emotionally in touch with themselves, relatively speaking. Um, and uh, than I was at this age. I'm looking at you. You're only in your late thirties. I think, man, how? I mean, it took me a long time to not really give a fuck, and I'm in my sixties and. I don't wonder how someone like you is so lucky in your 30s to arrive at this point in your life. It's not maturity because maturity comes a lot later. It's it's actual intellect and knowledge. It's actually sitting down and th- you've actually sat down and thought this through. So much so that you've written a book and now you've produced a documentary. You've got to a point where you want to pay it forward and share it. How do you feel about that? I mean, do you feel a responsibility? Is it a responsibility you've got to leave your life a certain way as a result of that? Well, first of all, it, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's grateful every day. Uh, the responsibility question is a really good question. It's, I struggled with that. So very early in my career, I kind of struggled with that pressure of like, oh my God, I wrote all these things. Now I got to live like this. And 
it stressed me out quite a bit early on. And this was when my audience was tiny, you know, it was just probably a couple thousand people. And so I made a, I made a decision very early on that I'm going to be completely transparent about my own shortcomings and my own insecurities and let everybody know like, Hey, I don't have this all figured out. I'm still struggling with this as well. And at the time, it's funny because at the time, you know, this was probably 2010, something like that. You know, the self-help industry was still very much like guru base. Like you've got the guy on stage who's got all the answers. And if you're that guy, like, you know, you can't admit these things. And so it was, it was very, I was a little bit anxious about saying, you know, admitting those things or saying those things. But in hindsight, I think it was necessary, not only for my own mental health and just sanity, but I think it's actually very helpful for my audience as well, because it creates trust. I don't know. I think I like to think it gives me a little bit more credibility. You know, when I, when I say like, Hey, I wrote this thing, but I wrote it cause I, I fucking struggle with it all the time. And this is what I found helps me. And maybe it helps you, maybe it doesn't, but here it is. I, I just think in this day and age, people really appreciate that. And they, they give it a lot more credit, you know, than if I showed up and tried to pretend like I had all the answers. In terms of responsibility, that's another thing, especially when the book blew up in 2016, 2017, it, it stressed me out a little bit. Like, okay, now I got all millions of people reading me. I got to say the right thing. I got to do the right thing. You know, I've, I have influence. There's responsibility around that. I'd let that influence some of the things that I would write about or say. I think as the years have gone on, I've become a little bit more comfortable of like, hey, it's as long as I'm not like being egregious, you know, saying really radical or fucked up stuff. To a certain extent, it's not really my business what people take from my work. You know, I it's funny because and I've I've been around long enough too that I've written enough articles where two people will read the same article and take two completely different lessons from that article. And both of those lessons are, are, are things that I didn't even think about when I wrote it. So I've just kind of realized that it's like, once you write something, it's just kind of its own thing that exists in the world and people take their own interpretations from it. So I'm trying to be a little bit less fearful around that. I'm kind of in a, in a place where I'm going into the next phase of my career where I, I want to be a lot less fearful of that. I, I want to be able to engage people a little bit more openly and, and not worry so much of like, oh my God, if I write this thing and then somebody goes off and kills themselves, I'm going to get sued and it's going to be horrible and I'm, it's going to ruin my life. Like, you know, they, those thoughts, I don't think it's good to be controlled by those thoughts. I, I don't, I think it prevents me from doing what I do best. Um, I, I get a, a heavy sense of honesty coming from you like uh, you know we'll talk about you know the authentic mark and all that sort of stuff but i feel real honesty in terms of proper virtue like proper honesty and proper virtue sense how comforting is it for you around dealing with your fears how comforting is it for you to be able to be honest mm. that is not giving a fuck that's what honesty is i don't give a fuck because i'm honest so there is a lot of people in this industry who I'm not going to say that they're dis, I mean, there definitely are people in this industry who are dishonest, but there are a lot of people in this industry who are also not authentic. They're honest, but they're not really, they're, you know, they're kind of putting on a character. I don't know how you survive in this industry that way. Like it just, it would eat me up. Honestly, it's being open. I, again, it comes back to this lesson that I took many, many years ago when I was starting out. Like it's 
the openness not only is it good for me, it's almost like kind of a therapy for me. It's like this level of openness with with and interviews and media and my with my audience. I think it's necessary. Like these are so these topics that I write about, they're so sensitive and personal for so many people. You're doing it a disservice if you're not completely honest and authentic. It will water it down for people. It's a huge value of mine in my personal life, but it's also a huge value of mine in my professional life. I think if you're going to be in this industry, part of it, this is not just about giving advice. Like you have to, part of it is, is, is teaching by doing, you know, it's like, I, I write a lot in all of my books about, uh, vulnerability, honesty, openness, and how beneficial those things are for relationships, how beneficial they are for mental health, uh, for managing emotions. And and so the, one of the best ways I can teach that is by just showing. In your documentary, is it in some way, though, evangelistic in that it's perhaps aimed at some in the help, uh, self-help industry? Yeah, a little bit. I've definitely always had a chip on my shoulder about certain business practices in this industry. And I guess certain personality cults <laughs> in this industry. It's something that's bothered me for a long time. And it's it's been a conscious goal of mine for many, many years to disrupt the industry in a way to, that that makes those practices no longer as profitable as they are. So yes, it is absolutely, I am trying to fuck up some people's shit. <laughs> but, yeah, I love that. Man, I'm with you. I, I, because uh, I see it happen here in Australia, at least, um, People, um, I won't name names, obviously, but they're you know they're well known. They arrive in the country, they fill rooms with thousands of people, and everybody gets wound up for about two or three days, and then they walk out after their two thousand, two or three thousand dollars lighter in their pocket, and they they had a massive rev up, intellectual, uh, emotional rev up, and then they walk out and they go back to their normal life, and they they're completely depressed after because everything they thought they're going to achieve as a result of going along to this particular event is never going to be achievable for them. And, uh, and they look at everything. Everything looks wonderful and shiny and healthy and extraordinary and successful and blah, blah, blah. And uh, in some respects, not only do they lose the couple of thousand bucks they spend doing it, but they lose their self-esteem within a second. Because a lot of people, what they take from that, I was promised that this would change my life in three days and it didn't. I guess that's my fault. I fucked up because look at all these other people who changed their life in three days, you know, and it's, yeah, it's very pernicious. And especially when you're in an industry where there are so many emotionally and psychologically vulnerable people, you know, a lot of these people, like it's again, coming back to the responsibility piece, you know, it's, it's, I hear from people who are deeply depressed, deeply hurt, suicidal in some cases. If you just start making a bunch of like, big marketing promises to people like that. Like it, it they're, it's to me, it, it borders on unethical in a lot of cases. The ethical thing to do is to be upfront about these things. Change is really, really difficult. It is also slow in almost all cases. It's, it's a very slow process. It's also not linear. You, you have regression, you have setbacks, you have false progress in a lot of cases. Uh, and there's also no end point. There's no finish line. Like you're always going to be at least a little bit dissatisfied with things in your life. You're always going to have struggles and frustrations. You're always going to have self-doubts. You're always going to be anxious about something. 
it's just because you're human, you're alive. Um, and I think if we're not honest about these things, you're really doing people a disservice. You know, you're setting up false expectations, giving them false hopes. And if, if you take somebody who's in a very emotionally fragile place, it, it can be dangerous. That's the sort of um, the level of responsibility that you're taking. But I quite like what you said before, like you're effectively, the way I see it, and what the documentary, the way it sort of leads me along is that you are subtly, I think, disrupting what is otherwise known as a self-help industry for me. It's it's a, a first crack at it. Um, you've done it in your book, but this is much more powerful in that it's, you know, obviously it's a video and it's audio and it's everything else. You know, you, I can see everything that's going on. You tell a, you know, you tell the story. It's and disruption. I hope that it effectively does disrupt that self help industry. I actually hate it. Um, in fact, I refuse to go on some of these events. They sometimes ask me to come and talk because. You know, after I finish talking, they're selling some shit down the back of the room. And if you don't, if you hurry up to the front of the stage now, you'll get it for 50% off. To me, I think this stuff should be outlawed, but governments don't do anything about it. So what's cool about this is uh, your documentary. This is Mark taking people on this journey of disruption. So you're actually not just being the disruptor and building a business around disruption, which is what normally what disruptors do, but you're actually taking us all on the journey of disrupting or maybe having a better understanding of how self-help really works. Yeah, and it, it's it was very conscious early on in some of the earliest meetings. You know, I think one of the the reasons why the book worked so well and it resonated with so many people was that it disrupted kind of the conventional self-help book. It was so different and off the wall and kind of irreverent and silly and but also very serious and dark at times. The goal was to do that with the documentary as well. You know, there, there's, there are not a ton of self-help documentaries out there, but there are a handful of very popular ones and they all kind of follow a similar format and they're all have similar advice and similar vibes. And so it was very conscious in the early discussions of like, let's completely disrupt that as well. Let's like throw something completely unique and off the wall at people. Um, even to the point where it's not even clear, is it really even a documentary? Like it's not, it's definitely not fiction, but it's not really a documentary either. Like we're not exploring the subject and digging up archival footage and talking to professors and stuff. Um, it's just kind of this, its own thing. It's this, this kind of crazy eclectic experience. And, um, and yeah, I really, I really like that. I'm very proud of that. I think it's a, what I've seen it is a, a must watch for just about anybody because 2023 is actually going to present quite a number of challenges, things that us here in Australia at least haven't experienced for nearly 29 years. We haven't had a recession in our country for 29 years in Australia. The last one was in, in 1990. And we're, we are going to be being, become quite reflective on ourselves. And, you know, we've got all this inflation. It's a global issue and we've got Ukraine wars. We've got supply chain issues. There's going to be a lot of shit that hits our, hits our, hits the fan and it's going to approach us. And we've got to get our act together and make sure we get well 
structured intellectually and emotionally for what we're going to be confronted with in 2023. And I cannot think of a better way of doing that than starting in January, actually getting our our lives in order with watching a documentary, movie, story, whatever you want to call it, from, you know, you and and the title being The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. That is very important to kick 23 off as far as I'm concerned. So really good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Um, I, I, I love the fact that you're trying to disrupt what I call a shitty industry and uh, bring some common sense, honesty and authenticity to it. Thanks very much, Mark. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio production by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Jonathan Leondis and Simon McDermott. This is a Mentored Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.